Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Noreen Khalid. Um, it's eight o'clock on Wednesday, the 6th of October, and I'm your host on Teachers Talk Radio, The Late Show on Wednesday. Um, on tonight's show, I have the very wonderful Stephen Lane, uh, on Twitter as my guest. We'll be talking about um, pastoral care, religion, teaching, and lots more. Stay with us for what promises to be a really interesting hour and a half. And I see Stephen has already joined us. Hi, Steve. Hello. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thank you. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on tonight. No, thank you for giving up your Wednesday evening for me. That's and my listeners. That's really kind of you. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure really great to have you with us and and to anybody listening in um welcome to you all we've got steve in the studio already um if this uh, this is your show so do join in um and do uh, you know call call in or text or send us a message on social media ask steve anything you want to know um and if this is your first time tuning in or you would just like to find out a bit more about us then please head over to our website, www.ttradio.org. Uh, if you have thought about hosting a radio show of your own, you but didn't know where to start, then our website has the details about how to get in touch with us. And the team will be delighted to hear from you. And you may become one of our latest hosts with the show of your own. So, like I said, my guest, guest tonight is Stephen Lane. Stephen has been Stephen, is it all right? Uh, what would, how do you prefer to be called, Steve? Or I mean, Stephen? anything so long as it's not swearing. I, I'll, I'll answer to anything. Stephen, <laughs> okay, is, Stephen is fine. Steve is fine too. Okay. I, I, mentally, I've always called you Steve because maybe because your um, Twitter handle of Sputnik Steve. And, <laughs> That's right. And you, for me, you're Steve rather than Stephen. But I wanted yeah. to ask you what what well, you. It's an interesting thing. This thing about names. Uh -huh. um, you know, and perhaps it's a, a, a crisis of identity that, I, that uh -huh. I always have, that I, I seem to keep changing my preferences for what what handle I go by, both on social media and uh -huh. in real life as well. I found myself very recently signing off my emails to colleagues as Stephen, whereas I'd, I'd gotten into a habit of just signing off as S. So who knows? <laughs> Call me what you like, it's fine. Um, that reminds me, I've always wanted to know, what's the story behind your Twitter handle? <laughs> so, so um, 
you know, it, it has connotations, doesn't it? Of of, of the, you know the, the the word Sputnik is the name of the Russian yeah. satellite, and yeah. it was the first, as far as I'm aware, it was the first human-made artificial satellite to go into space, um, and it was a communication satellite. So sometimes I like to make up the story that I, I chose that name because of my interest in space and astronomy. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I like to say that I chose that name because it was to do with communication, which is what social media is all about. Sometimes I like to say that it's because of the American Education Programme, um, named after Sputnik following the launch of the satellite. The Americans felt that they needed to boost their education yeah. um, to catch up with the Russians. But the truth of the matter is that there was one day um, I went and had my hair cut and I had it a bit sort of spiky and I came in the uh, the front door and my wife looked at me and went, oh, hello, Sputnik. <laughs> um, and that's that's where it comes from. It, uh, and um, so, you know, when, you, when you're making that initial um, logging on bit to a social media platform and you've got that decision about what you're going to call yourself. And at the time that I joined Twitter... Um, I had the intention of being anonymous because at the time I probably wanted to moan a little bit about the school that I was in. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't last long, really. But mm. um, so, so that's where that that's where that came from. That didn't last long. The moaning or the school or you in the, the school? The, well, the the uh, a mixture. Um, the wanting to moan when I was looking back on my very early tweets, which I was doing recently because that's what my doctoral thesis was all yeah. about. Um, I, I discovered that actually very early on in my tweeting career, I was actually tweeting colleagues at the school that I worked at. So um, obviously the desire to, to remain anonymous didn't last that long. Um, <laughs> and neither did actually the wanting to moan about schools. I joined Twitter in the same year that I joined. I started working at that particular school. I'm no longer mm. there. Yeah. Um, and actually, despite some, uh, I do have criticisms about the way that school was run. It was never something that I necessarily wanted to publicly articulate. Okay, okay. Well, that that um, yeah, th I've always wondered about that. So thank you. It's, no um, problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we have your wife to thank for that. Yes, indeed. Well, I, I have my wife to thank for so very many things. Yeah, you're right. Uh, when I joined Twitter first, I had a really complicated handle because I never thought I'll you know I'll use it much. I joined. Um, Joe Penn, my friend, she said, oh, are you on Twitter? And I said, no, I'm not. I don't think I will be. Um, then we used to have somebody, Sheena Lewington, uh, at that time, she was tweeting anonymously um, as clerk to governors. Uh -huh. And her, her blogs were really, really, you know, one of the best governing blogs I could I am around. And so I started following. I joined Twitter in order to... Uh, um, is that my point of view or me? Sorry? Yeah, I, oh, no, we, I just had some feedback coming in. Uh, ah, so, yeah, I joined Twitter in order to follow Sheena. Uh, and at that time, I thought, well, I'll only follow Sheena and Joe, and that's it. So I had a really complicated um, handle with just, you know, lots of underscores and lots of things in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I did start getting followers, and if somebody said, what's your handle? And, you know, nine times out of ten, I wouldn't remember by handle because <laughs> it was so complicated. So I thought, no, I'll, I'll give it up and I'll, I'll stay, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, make another one. So this is, that's how I came. But yeah. I've still hung on to that because, you know, my at that time I used to, 
have Storyfy, and that was linked to that. So I thought I'll yes. I'll hang on to my Twitter account, but I don't use that one as much. Now, I, mm-hmm. and I find the whole thing about um, you know online identities and names absolutely fascinating. And um, you know, I've got a, I've got a couple of Twitter accounts that that I run. I've got the curriculum made one as well, and I've got um, you know I, I tweet sometimes from my school account, and. Um, you know the, these kind of different presentations of oneself um, are, are are fascinating. And when it, when it came to publishing the book, I had a kind of debate with myself about what name I should put put on the cover, because obviously in the real world, I'm you know I'm known as Stephen or Steve, but yeah. um, nobody really knows me by my well, certainly didn't know me by my flesh names I call it yeah. on social media, and it was through so it was through Twitter mainly that. Um, the whole book thing came about in the first place. Yeah. And so what I ended up doing was actually putting both names on the <laughs> cover of the book so that uh, there was that connection. And, and um, there was there was a time, there was a moment some years ago where one um, person got into an argument with me and old Andrew as it happens, and they published this really weird blog where they were kind of making fun of us for trying to be anonymous, um, and and they said, but he's he's Steve, he's anonymous, but he's even linked to a a, a just giving page with his real name on it. <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to be anonymous, and there's this yeah. whole thing about being anonymous as opposed yeah. to being pseudonymous. Yeah. Um, and thinking about um, you know, Vic Reeves, for example, is not that man's real name. Yeah. Um. And lots of people use pseudonyms because because there's an element, I suppose, of presenting a character or caricature to the world. And, you know, you start to wonder, is that what I've been doing through social media? And I think we all do to an extent, actually. The version that we present to the world on social media of ourselves is performative, um, mm-hmm. regardless, actually, of what name we're using. But I, I do, I find the whole thing about names and identity kind of fascinating. I went through a phase... I still do it sometimes, of changing, aside from the Twitter handle, you know, you've got your actual name on there. Yeah. I went through a phase of changing that every day <laughs> um, just to kind of, for my own, you know, entertainment really. And it really threw people, it really flummoxed people. Um, so that was interesting. But So, yeah, names and identities I do find fascinating. Oh, lovely. So, uh, so we've got Roger here, uh, uh, Tom Rogers, who's joined us, as well as... Hello, English with Tahina, who's joining us from France, uh, Jenny, Maya. Um, good evening. Oh, Maya is from, from Egypt. Hello, everyone. Oh, Thank wow. you for joining us. Yeah. So from Egypt, from France. Um, again, going on the tangent, um, um, Twitter names and anonymous accounts, what, uh, what do you think? Uh, should people be allowed to have anonymous accounts? Yeah, I think they should. Um, there's, there's perhaps an argument in favour of requiring a verifiable email address to, to register. Mm-hmm. Twitter or whatever platform um, has access to. But I think in terms of actually being on the platform, I think I think it's it's fundamental really to to be able to protect your identity because we've seen we've seen people. Um, using people's real identities in malicious ways and um you know if you are going to say things about 
uh, I mean, I've already mentioned Andrew, of course. Um, you know, old Andrew initially was was writing about things that um, needed to be said. Yeah. But I can perfectly understand why he might choose to protect his his um, real world identity by saying those things. Um, so I think it. I think absolutely, people should be able to be anonymous on social media. As I say, whether or not there needs to be a strong verification process, um, there might be. There might be an argument in favour of that because um, we've all seen how how people can misuse the platform. We've all seen mm -hmm. people who use multiple accounts to target and harass others. I mean, Noreen, you've been on the receiving end of plenty <laughs> of that. Um, and so I think that perhaps there does need to be some um, some way of monitoring who's using the platform, um, some way for Twitter to be able to monitor who's actually using it. But the, anon the, uh, the anonymous nature of the public-facing bit of the platform, I think, is important. Yeah, I mean, I... The other thing is, unless I had met you, there's no way I would have known that the picture on your account and your name is who you say you are. So well, that's anonymous bit, true. Yeah, so that's, you know, it. Uh, when I'm interacting with people, I, I uh, you know, uh, there's nothing, unless I know them myself, there's nothing to tell me whether they are, whether, even if it's not a anonymous account, whether they are actually who they say they are. So I think, yes. if it's, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I've got three accounts now. I had, you know, like I said, one one was I originally made two accounts: one for governance and one for mm -hmm. family. And but then my family started following me on my governance account, and uh, yeah. that got complicated. So I set up the third account with this easy to say, easy to remember name. But I held on to my other two. Now, mm. if somebody blocks me on my my main account, I always go on to my other two accounts and I send them a tweet that, look, you blocked me on the main, that's fine, your choice. But this is also my account, just in case you don't know and then you think, well, I've blocked her, but she's got two others. Yes. And I, I thought that was me being really upfront and transparent and everything. But I've got um, people who, who sort of, you know, abuse is too strong, but he sort of said, why are you doing that? What what does this mean? Why Why are you, why are you tweeting this? Yes. So you know, um, I can't understand I mean, you, people. You, well, you can't win, can you? There's, there's no way that you can win. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be somebody that, um, that is going to find um, or take offence in whatever you say, whatever okay. you do. There's, you know, there's always going to be somebody who's going to have, and, and especially, you know, I think it's fair to say that that you and I have both probably kind of established a bit of a reputation amongst some people. And once that's lodged in their minds, they're never going to see any yeah. other aspect of, of who you are and what you're doing. Mm. Um, you know, you're an evil neo-trad and that's that. <laughs> well, yeah, I am a trad, but really everybody listening, I'm not evil at all. I'm really quite sweet. <laughs> that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, you, you see some of the argy-bargy that goes on. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've decided to try and steer clear of all that kind of stuff. I used yeah. to quite enjoy getting involved in yeah. um, that that kind of stuff. But it's it's not good for the spirit. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I have got, I haven't completely stopped. Um, I don't think I ever will. Um, that's my nature. If I see somebody, if I see somebody having a go at you and I've seen mm. that and I know that that's wrong, I will, you know, jump in and, and 
say that you know no steve it's not what you are he's not evil <laughs> um yes. and all of that but um it does yeah anyway yes yeah, so, so because there's a, there's a there's a sense sometimes that you you feel that um you know someone's been wronged and and there's a you know you you want to you want to address that wrong you want to um uh redress the balance and certainly you know and actually this is a, a, a really good opportunity for me to to say this publicly which is you know you, you have supported me on so many occasions um on online uh, on twitter in particular um from well, vice, vice versa um the one which i'll never not do is it's um uh defend somebody who's been wrongly accused of racism or sexism i mean these mm. two are such horrible things t- um in real mm. life and and to be falsely accused is is awful um so uh, if i know somebody i mean i know you i know a few others who have been accused i know there's no way they are uh, they mm. you know they are that way and if somebody accuses them i will jump in and say and you know that gets me into trouble but hey <laughs> that's right and the, and the, i mean the one that's a particular favorite is the accusation of bullying isn't it yeah. um and you know these are kind of easy accusations to make but they're potentially so damaging yeah um and you know the ones that always kind of half entertain me and half kind of shock me i suppose are those ones where they'll tag your employer in or they'll they'll tag the LEA or the trust that you work for into responses and you know a- a- accuse you of of breaking the nodem principles and these sorts of things yeah. um and you just think you know where's the rational discourse here and and um it just it dissipates very very quickly yeah. in some in some conversations with some people the idea of rational discourse just disappears rapidly and they jump to the kind of easy accusations um yeah. lazy accusations which then when there are genuine incidents of racism and sexism and bullying there are some there, there's the potential i think there's a danger isn't there that those things somehow get trivialized exactly through the 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 misapplication of those those exactly. terms and exactly if everybody is a racist then nobody is Mm-hmm. yeah and that's you know th- that is that is the mo- main reason i do i mean there are two reasons one i don't like people being falsely accused of such horrendous things and secondly because these are horrendous things i want them to be used properly and for people who are racist mm-hmm. to be held account and not just because you didn't like what i you know somebody said about uh, tables in in rows for example yes yeah. yes yeah. yeah yeah crazy stuff crazy yeah. stuff Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, that went off on the tangent, didn't it? Indeed. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah. No, that was a good discussion. Um, your your PhD thesis. How much of uh, uh, of Twitter went into that? Say that again. I'm sorry. Your PhD thesis. Oh, okay. Right. Well, yeah. So, um, yeah. So the 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 title of of my thesis uh, is something along the lines of Twitterotopia. the rise of edgy twitter the twitter society um and a teacher who tweets so um you'll 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 remember that there was there was a, a couple of years where I was tweeting a bit about michel foucault and i yeah. and i used so the first basically the first half of the thesis is a kind of theoretical framing of how 
Twitter, well, edgy Twitter in particular, operates as a, as a discursive space. Mm-hmm. What I what I observed, particularly sort of around twenty thirteen on Twitter, was was something quite important happening where um, teachers on social media, teachers on Twitter, teachers who are writing blogs, were 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 being listened to, were being noticed by people at the DFE. Mm-hmm. And by the inspectorate at Ofsted, and um, a, a, there was a kind of key shift, I think, in 2013, when, in particular, Michael Gove mentions um, people like old Andrew and Tom Bennett in in a speech that he gave, and around about the same time, Ofsted were um, putting out their new handbook, which had clearly been put uh, out in response to discussions that have been happening in blogs and, and social media about the damage that their previous approach perhaps was doing. Um, and, and it just struck me that there was something important happening here where the voice of actual classroom practitioners, of actual teachers, um, could be heard uh, without having the proxy of unions or um, without having to go through the proxy of senior, school, the senior leaders, that there was a direct voice from, from the teachers which was being heard and um so i I talked about how uh, in the the first part of the thesis i kind of talked about that and how that operates Um, and i I call that the tweacher society so people who engage in uh discussions on twitter um and also the other thing that then happened and i think it was 2013 again or certainly thereabouts was when research ed was launched um, which again was this kind of groundswell of normal teachers with an interest in developing their practice along the lines of becoming research and evidence informed. And it, the spark of that event took place on Twitter. Um, and then there was the, you know, the first conference and the tickets I think sold out within a matter of hours for that. And in the year since, of course, it's become a, a huge phenomenon around around the world, in fact. Um, with with so many teachers and um, academics um, working together, sharing ideas, sharing discussions about um, classroom practice. It's a phenomenal movement. And um, so the first half of my thesis is is about all of that. And I, and I use some um, kind of theoretical tools from Foucault to, to uh, kind of establish that as a discursive thing. And then the second half of the thesis is essentially an autoethnographic account of when I started using Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, So I looked back at the first bunch of tweets that I sent out in 2011 and then 2012, and I kind of reflected on, you know, do do those tweets still represent and reflect what I think now, 10 years later? Um, how were those tweets operating? You know, we were talking earlier about um, identity and part of it is about identity creation and identity performance. So I, I was kind of looking at those early tweets to try and understand what maybe I was doing as Sputnik Steve um, as, a, as a creation of, of self. And that, that's what it comes down to, really. And, and I suppose my overall claim with it is and that by engaging with discussions on Twitter, you are actually reforming your self-identity, which if you channel that 
effectively and correctly is actually a really potent form of professional development essentially and so so that's what the thesis is about <laughs> are, are you uh, in a position to publish any papers from it so um the um the thesis has I passed my viva back in February. I had to do quite a few corrections to it. Um, so I got those done. And I had my letter just a couple of weeks ago to say that uh, I've completed successfully. And so yeah. I have passed my doctorate now. Um, so um, my supervisor said I can use the title. So that's all I need to know. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there are, I think there's potentially a few papers that could come out of of it, um, but I'm not even going to begin looking at that just yet. I need a bit of I need a bit of time away from it. Um, uh-huh. I think because I started the ed, it's an ed D that I did actually rather than a PhD, and I started yeah. it ten years ago. Um, and and you know I just need to take a step back from it a little bit. I think, um, but I think I will revisit some of the stuff in there and and try and get some bits published here and there. Oh, that that will be interesting. It'll, I, I'm sure it's going to make fascinating reading for those of us, especially those of us who are on Twitter and those of us who have been following Edu Twitter for some time. That it would be interesting to see what you know, um, mm. what you found, what your research came up. Mm. And it's interesting when I started looking at it, there wasn't really a huge amount out there about specifically. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount about Twitter, frankly. Mm. Um, there certainly wasn't much about sort of teachers twitter edu twitter um but by the time that i'd finished <laughs> finished the darn thing you know, <laughs> there was a lot there was a lot more that was coming out and one of the most recent ones of course was the the uh, steve watson thing that came out uh in digital form a couple of years ago and then i think there was the hard the hard copy version in the Beera journal um this year which was the the new right 2.0 um, yeah. micro populism thing, which yeah. is a really fascinating paper. I mean, some of it's, you know, challengeable, and there's plenty of people who challenged it on on Twitter. Um, but it's an interesting perspective on how Twitter, edgy Twitter, how teachers have kind of become politicised, perhaps through, or or maybe they've always been politicised. I don't know, um, okay. but how Twitter has. Um, enabled that. I was fascinated by the idea of it being populist this discourse that was coming out of some of the um, some of the participants that Watson identified. Um, I found that quite an interesting accusation, really. <laughs> so uh, that that's an interesting paper. There have been some you know some interesting stuff that's come out um, in recent years, but um, not much really about uh, the kind of stuff that I was talking about. And certainly, I haven't found anything else that. Shoot his food code to talk about edgy Twitter, but um, maybe there is stuff out there. So, so that uh, you know, I always wonder whether uh, you know when edgy Twitter gets really fractious, when there are lots of you know, mm. blocking going on and muting, and people getting really upset, and and some throwing their toys out of the pram, etc. And I wonder whether it was always like that, and I just didn't notice it because I only had about twenty followers, and and I'm noting it noticing it more now because I'm yeah. spending more time in it or has it actually become more uh, confrontational maybe um yeah it's an interesting question and I mean I don't know I think when I joined Twitter oh, it was back in 2011 when I joined and fairly early on I I was 
observing and certainly involved in quite sort of fractious uh, discussions. I think probably as more people have joined the community, if you like, um, that's perhaps become more so. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's particularly new or if once you've been on it for a while, you see the same arguments getting recycled. Um, You see new people joining and then kind of having arguments that you were having previously a couple of years ago. Um, And so you you just kind of, from my point of view, it's kind of like you get a bit tired of that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's so easy to get distracted by, um, by all of that and forget that what the teacher community on Twitter are really good at is being very supportive of each other and yes. sharing fantastic resources. Um, you know, there's people who are who are willingly sharing resources and ideas for free. Um, you have people who, um, you know, p- people who are academics, people like um, you know Willingham and uh, others like that who are engaging with mm. the teacher community. To, to move us forward in, in our practice in all sorts of different ways. Um, and even even people that I disagree with, um, you know, I've learned a lot from people that I disagree with. Yeah. And so long as the, the discourse is civil, you yeah. know, you can have some fantastic conversations with people on, on Twitter. Yeah, I was um, going to say that uh, many of my most fascinating discussions have been with people I disagree with. Mm-hmm. And, of, of uh, but because they are civil and, you know, we, we bounce ideas off. Uh, so that helps me either I change my mind or I don't. Um, but the fact that I have listened to the other side and then still not change my mind, I think that's a, another positive that I haven't just, you know, it's not an entrenched position is because I have listened to that person and then I they haven't managed to change my mind. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right. I, I used to, uh, you know, a, a lot of the people that I was most challenging towards were people that I initially agreed with. And, mm-hmm. and part of the reason why I would challenge those is because I'm kind of testing out my own ideological positions and um, often finding them wanting. And, and where, where, where I've changed my mind about things is usually because I've challenged somebody that I agree with and their response has, has been unconvincing, and you actually think, well, maybe maybe I was wrong about that then. And, um, you know, yeah. you, 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 you come across people who, who um, are very convincing in their arguments, and you think, oh, okay, yeah, that maybe there's, there's merit in that. Maybe I need to think about that again. And there's been lots of times where I've said something, often quite flippantly, and then somebody's come back at me to say, actually i'm not sure that you know that's that's right i'm not sure that's appropriate and i've ended up saying yeah you're absolutely right and i've apologized on twitter before now because mm-hmm. you know somebody i've said something flippant perhaps or, or just blatantly wrong and somebody has taken the time to um point it out to me in a in a supportive and friendly way um and you kind of go yeah okay that's a, that's a fair comment um so, yeah, I, I think it's very easy to allow yourself to get swayed by the sort of negative stuff that's on there yeah. and to completely forget about all the, all the great stuff that's going on. And there is a lot of great stuff going on on Twitter. I, I remember when uh, Edie Hirsch was here and he spoke at Policy Exchange. So I went uh-huh. along to that um, 
event and I tweeted um, something along the lines that, you know, listening to E.D. Hirsch, the legend, or, or, or the hero or something. And somebody, I usually have, um, I forget who, who forget the handle. Anyway, he's, he asked me, why do I think he is a legend? And, I, and, I, and that made me sort of sit back and think, how do I explain it to somebody who probably doesn't think that E.D. Hirsch is a legend? Yes. Um, and I said, well, because of cultural knowledge. And I then gave my example that I come from an educated you know, family in Pakistan. And my father and mother were both, you know, they both went to university. They both had masters and higher degrees. Mm-hmm. And, we used, and they used to talk to me about the partition, about, um, about Indian history. My father knew Persian, so he would, uh, you know, recite Persian poetry to us. Um, ah. And he'd take us out to these archaeological ruins and tell us all about it. But mm. that, and that sort of formed who I am. But that was only because I was lucky enough to be born in that family. And mm-hmm. what A.D. Hirsch argues is that that cultural knowledge, everybody should have uh, access to that. So he, he uh, as far as I, I read him, he says, you know, there should be cultural knowledge about it. And he hasn't, um, although he's given a list of things which um, people should know or children should know, but that's American. There's nothing stopping you to making a list yourself in Pakistan, for example, and saying every child should know about Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa and, you know, Chokhandi tombs, which I know because my, mm. my parents told me about it. So, yes. but, uh, but I only sort of verbalized it because I was challenged on 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 saying but because the challenge was polite it wasn't that's right and, and 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 being being forced to give an account of yourself like that yes. Yes. um is a really interesting and productive uh, activity I think yeah so to, yeah. to actually you know stop and think well why do I believe what I believe okay. why why am I do and as teachers I think that we we aren't encouraged enough to do that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I think as teachers, as classroom teachers, as middle leaders and as senior leaders, I think we are far too busy um, to to be able to actually sit and reflect upon. And there's an irony, you know, when you're training to teach, I can remember doing my BA, um, you, would, you would have to write evaluations of the lessons that you've, you've taught. And as soon as you qualify, that's it. You don't have to do that anymore. And just and it's it's odd, really, that we that we aren't um, we aren't used in teaching as standard practice to reflect on our practice. We're not used to actually giving a, an account of why we're teaching, what we're teaching, and why we're teaching it in the way that we're teaching, and why we're doing the things that we are doing. We, we are not we are not expected to reflect on that. And yet, in in other professions. And certainly, in teachers in other countries are also, you know, expected to give an account of that and to engage in a much more sort of reflective practice. And I and I wish that we could do that more here. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, yeah. Um, right. Um, going back to 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 your um, day job now. Um, okay. So your, um, I believe you teach English as well as computing. Okay, so I, I'm a, uh, yeah, I'm a teacher of English. I'm not teaching computing. I only ever taught computing uh, when there was a gap in the timetable and I needed somebody to do it. Um, I'm not a computing uh, specialist. Um, I'm just somebody who's interested in computing. So I, I taught a bit of Year 7 computing from time to time. But I'm a teacher of English. 
Uh, okay. Uh, well, that's because I was going to say it's not an odd combination, but you've explained <laughs> that there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is a bit of an odd combination, isn't it? Yeah. Um, are you still head of year? Yes. Um, I've had a, a slight change of roles this year. So I, I work in a, a, an independent school um, okay. and I've been there now for six years. And um, I, I took on um, the role of head of year for year seven, eight and nine, which always sounds massive. But of course, at our place, um, uh, that was probably about 120, 130 students that I was overseeing. Um but this year I've taken on the role of um, leading our chaplaincy. Um, okay. Our school chaplain left at Easter and I've taken over running the chaplaincy bit. I, um, so I relinquished the head of year eight and nine. I'm still head of year seven, though, at my place. So I'm head of year seven and chaplaincy lead. Oh, that brings me to something I was going to ask later on, but we might as well uh, do that now. Um, how important is religion in your life, and um, why? How, how did you, you know, how did you get into it? How did you mm. decide that yes, chaplaincy is for me? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, and uh, I mean, we, this could take up the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the time of the show. But um, <laughs> my personal journey on that has, uh, I, I grew up in an atheist household, mm. um, and I wasn't christened as a child. And, um, but I, the school that I, I was at school in the 70s and the 80s, every school had to be religious back then. We had to, you know, have religious themed assemblies and sing hymns and things. And I always had in the back of my head a kind of question about um, the nature of the divine and about God and those sorts of things. So it was always kind of there. Um, through my teenage years, I became a sort of, arrogant atheist myself you know thinking that religious people must be stupid and weak hmm. but never being convinced by that and I started to get interested in I was reading about you know paganism and Wicca and those sorts of things but I, I discovered um Taoism and I still consider myself to have some um Taoist leanings I think the Tao Te Ching is a, such a beautiful and powerful collection of words um but alongside all of that happening, I met I met uh, my wife, um, who grew up um, with uh, attending church on a, on a weekly basis. We got married in a church, so I made my vows to my wife um, before God. Um, and it was when our first daughter was born, and I held her in my arms the first time she was born prim um mm -hmm. she was born like uh, 32 weeks and mm -hmm. she it, it was you know the the you know definition of a miracle as far as i was concerned mm -hmm. it was it was um seeing her when she opened her eyes and i saw her eyes for the first time i just i felt an overwhelming sense of the divine right there mm -hmm. um and then when we had a conversation with our local vicar about having our daughter christened about having a baptized and the vicar came round to the house and talked us through what that entailed and what would happen um i just got this overwhelming sense at that point that i i needed that as well so um i was baptized the same year as my daughter oh, which would be about 11 yeah. years ago now um and then i was confirmed later that year 
here at Litchfield in the cathedral. And um, from that point on, I started to get involved in my local church, um, started to help out leading some of the um, the family services, um, leading Christmas services and those sorts of things. They do a wonderful thing in our village here, which is a barn nativity, um, which is kind of what it says on the tin. It's a celebration of the nativity actually in a barn. So a local yeah. farmer um, offers their space up. And so you're actually doing this nativity surrounded by animals and hay. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so so there was that pull through, you know, that that I had. There was this voice in the back of my head that that um, was getting louder about a desire to to follow that kind of path. Mm-hmm. That then coincided with me moving out of the state sector. I was I've been a, a a teacher in the state sector for about fifteen years, and and I moved into the independent school that I'm at now, which is. Um, a, 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 a Christian cathedral school um, and fairly early on was talking, having conversations with the chaplain about about questions about theology, questions about faith, questions about the sermons that he was giving. Um, he moved on and we got a new school chaplain in a few years uh, ago um, who, again, I was having many conversations with um about my own sort of sense of calling and um questions about theology again and those sorts of issues and so when he left um he had a word with the head teacher and said i think steve would um would be good at at doing this sort of work um and so that was a conversation that the head and i then had um so so it, it's been a pull and it's almost like kind of falling slowly. It's like you, mm-hmm. you don't plan to, you know, gravity's there, you know, you don't plan yeah. to, you don't plan to stick to the earth, yeah. but you've got no choice in it. And yeah. and it feels a little bit like, you know, I was moving in that direction. That was the flow that my life was leading in. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and I'm really enjoying the chaplaincy bit actually. Um, and a set of year, um, so we've got the cathedral school, but we've also got our own little chapel uh, attached to our school, which is where we have year group assemblies. And so as head of year, I was leading these um, year group assemblies and, and really feeling that that was something that I wanted to do more of, that I wanted to build on that aspect of of my work. Um it felt it yeah. felt important. It okay. felt important to me to, to be doing that. That's, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You're very welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, we're going to stop for a little advert break and go go on to the news desk. Um, mm-hmm. While we do that, um, when we come back, I'm going to ask you whether religion has played a role in making you look at pastoral care or uh-huh. not. So have a think about that while okay. we play the adverts and the news. Okay, okay. Speak to you soon. Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programs to help you? Read, write, ink phonics, Floppy's phonics, the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, 
easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Yana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult opportunities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the MAL CPD Essential Coaching Skills Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, oh. Oh. Needs yeah, yeah. phonics teaching. Did you know Oxford <laughs> University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you? Read, write, ink, phonics, floppy phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. The government has laid out plans to make offering, advertising or providing essay writing services to university and college students for financial gain illegal. The new measure will be part of the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill, which hopes to transform further and technical education. The Department for Education said it hopes the criminalisation of SA Mill services will stop students from falling prey to deceptive marketing techniques from contract cheating services. The latest coronavirus figures show that 204,000 students were absent in England last week due to contracting or having close contact with the virus. This equates to 1 in 40 students off school in England, up from 1 in 80 on September 7th. Teaching unions have called the statistics grim and fear it is the unvaccinated status of the majority of 10 to 19 year olds that is causing the rise. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News.
Welcome back. It's Wednesday. Um, we're coming up to nine o'clock. Uh, it's about ten minutes to nine. I'm Noreen Khalid, and this is Teachers Talk Radio, the Wednesday Late Show. And with me, we have Doctor Stephen Lane. Uh, yes. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I should have said that before, but uh, I didn't know that you had, um, you know, you, that you that I was able to say that now. Um, well, yeah. Well, am I the first one who's uh, who's called you Doctor? Um, on the public forum. On a public forum, uh, I think you might be. Oh, wonderful. Right. So, um, religion and pastoral care. Now, um, I get the feeling religion is important to you, and you've already mm. explained how you got to where you are. Has that informed your work, which which you have done as far as pastoral care is, is concerned? It's. I mean, it, it has. Um, so, I mean. The, the context that I am working in, which is a school which um, celebrates a Christian ethos, mm-hmm. although we welcome students of all faiths and none, um, it's it's pretty um, easy for me to draw upon the teachings of the Christian tradition um, within my sort of pastoral work, particularly when it comes to... Um, the messages that I want to deliver through our assemblies. And one of the things that I've talked about in the, in the book and talked about elsewhere is the importance of a, of a pastoral curriculum. Um, thinking about what, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, what, what is it that we want our kids to know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but also from a pastoral point of view, a pastoral curriculum, what is it, what, what are the ways in which we want our kids to behave? What kinds of people do we actually want them to be? How do we want them to view themselves in the world in which they find themselves? And so um, a lot of those questions are answered for me in that, in that faith tradition. And um, it, it comes down to my, the main message that I always try to give the students is um, found in the the commandments that Jesus gives us, which number one is love God, but number two is love thy neighbor as thyself. And um, that's a, that's a formulation of the, of the golden rule that we find in, I think, uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, in every religion that we find in the world has a version of that Mm. kind of that rule. It's the golden rule. It's treat others as you would wish to be treated. Um, and I think that that's such a fundamental message. And we get it wrong all the time because we're human and we make mistakes. But if we acknowledge that we make mistakes um, and we um, apologise for the mistakes that we make and we move on with the intention of loving our neighbour, with the intention of treating others um, as we would wish to be treated, that's not to say that we give others other people a free pass all the time, but it is to to couch everything that we do in um, in a spirit of love, in a spirit of being supportive, rather than in a spirit of aggression or a spirit of um, attempting to diminish uh, other people. Uh, elsewhere in the 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 uh, the. Um, the letters uh, of St Paul, I think, um, there's the suggestion that we should use our words carefully, that we should use our words to um, raise others up, 
rather than to push them down. Mm. Um, and that has been something that, again, I, I call upon in my pastoral work. And a lot of the time, the pastoral stuff that I'm dealing with um, between students is relational conflicts. You know, friends fall out. They, they have their, um, uh, their shifting dynamics of friendship groups and those sorts of things. And kids say horrible stuff to each other. Kids put ridiculous things about each other on online. They're constantly, you know, talking about each other in WhatsApp groups, even though I keep telling them that they're not old enough to have WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that kind of work, when you're trying to resolve issues between individuals, is to say, okay, the things that you have said are they coming from a spirit of wanting to support the other person or are they coming from a position of wanting to harm or upset that other person? Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, uh, plenty of people out there will have those kind of conversations with kids without having a religious conviction. Um, but for me, um, what I think the religious tradition does is it gives me a language in which to think about these things. Um, and a language in which to address these things. So it might not be overtly religious. I don't go up to kids and say, remember, folks, Jesus teaches us to do this, that, and the other. That's that's not what it's about. But it is about saying, okay, what's happened here, the things that we have said, the things that we have done, um, perhaps have been intended to to harm others. How would it be if our intention tomorrow was to support each other? Now, I'm not saying that you have to like each other mm-hmm. because you're human and, you you know, I don't expect everybody to be best friends. Yeah. But even people we don't like, we can still treat with some kindness. We can still treat with some respect. So so that, I think, is a, is a primary driver for the way that I, I operate within the pastoral role is, is, is from that perspective. I also think, I mean, one of the things that I'm increasingly interested in, and I've been tweeting a, a little bit about this lately, is about the pastoral care that school leaders offer to their staff. Mm, yes. um, and it, it's very easy, I think, to kind of forget that layer. I mean, we talk about well-being a lot nowadays, don't we, well-being, um, which, which amounts to the same thing, really. And um, one of the, the things that as the chaplaincy role is, is that I'm there for a pastoral support for the kids, but I'm also there for pastoral support for the parents and for my colleagues too. And um, again, the, the sort of religious tradition there um, has helped me to, 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 to kind of grapple with, with that aspect of the work, certainly. So I think really what it, what it does is it just, it gives me a framework that helps me to do my pastoral work. That's again, that's, that's really interesting what you say. Um, what you said about loving your neighbor, that reminds me of uh, something Muslims have in the Quran. I can't remember, I don't remember the exact translation, but mm-hmm. it goes something like, like, you can't be a good Muslim if your neighbor is not protected from harm uh, coming uh-huh. from you. And yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't say that, you know, you're, you can't be a good Muslim if your Muslim neighbor isn't protected. It just says if you can't be a good Muslim if your neighbor is harmed by you. So mm. I think it's it's something that, you know. It's, again, it's the same thing about loving your neighbor. Uh, yeah, is, uh, yeah. That's really and and it's it is it is that that ultimate essence of of 
that that is where the great potential of humanity lies isn't it in the, in the way that we treat others and it's also where the great tragedy of humanity lies which is where where we we fail to do that um and you know whether we're talking about a quarrel between kids in school or whether we're talking about warring nations essentially it's the same problem which is a refusal or an inability or a lack of willingness to just take a step back and think about the other person as a person. Um, you know, throughout history, what do we do to our enemies? We first have to dehumanise them in order mm. for them to be enemies. Yeah. Um, and so, it's a, it, you know, this is an antidote to that dehumanising okay. of the other you know where we have to we have to acknowledge and recognize and celebrate the inherent humanity of our of, of you know our fellow people interesting um you talk a lot about uh, knowledge rich pastoral curriculum yeah. whatever is that <laughs> well i mean that's that's a that's a good question isn't it and, <laughs> and it, it it's it comes back to what i said a little, a little earlier about you know what are the key things that we want kids to know that's that's the key question of any kind of curriculum you know what are the things that we want our children to know a, a knowledge rich pastoral curriculum asks the same question but it's what are the key things that we want children our children to know about themselves what are the key things that we want our children to know about each other? What are the key things that we want children to know about their place in the world um, and how they can come to terms with their place in the world? Um, what are the key questions that, that what, are the, what are the key things that we want our children to know about the communities that they, that they inhabit? Um, and I use the word communities as a plural quite deliberately there because it's very easy to think of ourselves as being a member of one community. But, you know, each individual is a member of several communities. They're a member of their family community. They're a member of their extended family community. They might be a member of a religious uh, community. They might be a... Um, a member of, um, you know, any other kind of social groups that they're part of, as well as being a member of the school community. And then within the school community, of course, they're members of a year group community. They're members of uh, a form group community. But there's also all of the, um, the, the hidden curriculum stuff. You know, what is it that kids are learning that we aren't teach deliberately teaching them? What are they learning about? what it is to be human while they're on the playground, while they're in the changing rooms, while they're in the toilets. And what do we need to do in our pastoral curriculum to address and rebalance um, and maybe undo some of that, that stuff? So that's what I mean by that, really. It's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's about asking the questions of what is it that we want our kids to know and also developing um, a sense of, uh, kind of linear progression through that as well. So often, what I've seen in schools is people who who are meaning well, but but send out really confusing messages in their. Um, I've got a particular thing about assemblies, mm -hmm. um, and and I think I'll give a couple of examples of this in in the book. Um, one school I worked at where the head teacher um, would give a every week would have an assembly with the year 11 students and every time he saw them in an assembly and in fact i think they had two assemblies a week he would say we're expecting 70 percent of you to get five 
A star, uh, A to C grades at your GCSE. That was the message that they got all the time. And I used to think, what about the 30% of kids who aren't expected to get mm -hmm. that? And they know who they are. Mm -hmm. What message are we sending about them, to them? What are they hearing from us about their position, their status, their role within that school community? Um, and so that, that was one that I felt was a particularly damaging message. Um, another one... Um, was a different school um i was a, a year 10 form tutor and the head of year gave an assembly again completely well-meaning this one um where they showed a, a video on youtube which was a montage of clips of people doing amazing things apparently so you had a, somebody who was doing stunts on a bmx and doing great jumps over a ravine or something like that and you had people doing parkour and those sorts of things but one of the clips embedded in this montage was somebody who was sort of stepping onto the front of and then jumping over a moving car. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, we're showing this to year 10, we're showing this to 14, 15-year-olds as an example of aspiration yeah. to go jumping over moving cars. Mm. And I just thought, you know, what, what, what is this about? What are what's the what are the key messages that the kids are actually going to take away from this? And it's about um, you know needing to have a very deliberate uh, curriculum for things like assemblies. And how does today's assembly link with the assembly that we gave them last week? And how will it link to the assembly that we're going to be giving them next week? I, I was particularly interested in. I remember seeing Claire Seely talk about um, um, curriculum as box set. Yeah. And um, this whole thing about, and she talked about how she compared The Simpsons to, I think it was Game of Thrones, where The Simpsons is episodic, right? And that program is, I don't know, what is it, 20, 30 years old now? And every episode, Bart is the same age. There's yeah. no kind of progression there. Whereas you watch something like Game of Thrones, and obviously there's an arc running through that, that of, of story. And she talks about how dramas, will, the episode will start with previously on Game of Thrones and then the end might have something like next time on Game of Thrones. And actually that's a really useful framework for thinking about curriculum generally and pastoral cu curriculum in particular about, okay, what, what knowledge have we given them before? What knowledge have they already got? And how am I building on that knowledge? And what's the direction that we're going in with this accumulation of knowledge that we're giving them? Um, that was quite a long answer. I hope it's come somewhere near actually answering the questions you think it was. No, it does. It does. It's, <laughs> um, it's, um, it's, there's lots, lots there to pick, pick out, isn't it? Um, exams, uh, you talked about how one head had said, you know, 70% of you must be getting yeah. exams. So um, that is one of the questions I had, that you are an English teacher mm -hmm. um, and um, you teach you know, GCSE A-level mm -hmm. students um, and your job as an English teacher is to get them through the exams so that you know they leave school with that in a good English qualification in mm -hmm. the back and you are a pastoral lead. Is there mm -hmm. a tension between these two roles? Sometimes I think there is but, but it's interesting that I mean the way that you phrased that uh, question um my job is to to get them through the exams well I, that's part of my job mm -hmm. um 
part of my job, actually, I think, as an English teacher, is to give them an opportunity to encounter, um, you know, the great conversations of humankind. Yes. Um, so when I'm when I'm doing the poetry anthology, which we do for GCSE English Literature, I, I'm not just churning through these poems saying you've got to learn this quote, learn that quote, learn that quote. I'm having conversations with them about why Blake was so angry. Um, I'm having conversations with them about um, what romanticism was all about and how that still influences the way that we think about things today. Um, when we read um, Dolce Decorum Est, you know, it's not just about in an exam, you need to say this about this poem. It's yeah. actually looking at that as a piece of art, as a piece yeah. of literature grounded in a particular moment in time. So um, the the examination aspect of it of course is very important but to me it's kind of one aspect of of what we're doing and um what i try to encourage my students to see is that exams are an opportunity for them to show off yeah um they're an opportunity for them to show off what they've learned what they know what they're interested in what they care about in terms of in relation to my subject um and people are talking about you know there's no creativity schools have killed creativity well i look at the opportunities that my students have to write about literature to write creatively in their english language papers and actually i think you know there's a lot of creativity embedded in that yeah. um so so for me i you know i take that approach yes exams are important and um you know i inevitably do have to teach exam technique but i'm much more much more interested in 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 talking about the literature as literature and, and and thinking about you know what it is that the writers are are actually doing um if if they are then able to write some interesting stuff about it in an exam then that's a bonus uh, for me really so the tension between subject stuff and pastoral stuff um i kind of resolve by thinking um I think schools have got it the wrong way around. Often I see um, discussions where they say, we give children good pastoral support so that they can achieve academically. Mm. Yeah. To me, that's the wrong way, wrong way around. Uh -huh. I try to give children the best um, academic experience that I can in order that they um, feel feel good about themselves that they have a self a sense of self-worth that it's a positive impact on their well-being and also in their long their long-term well-being you know hopefully they'll go on to get a job that they they enjoy and um have success with you know that they have that they enjoy success in their older life but more than that that they're they're happy that they're content in their in their adult life well well that is a pastoral concern um so actually all of the objectives that we have as schools about them getting you know doing well in their exams and and uh, going on to do uh, either a levels or some other thing the next stage of their life that's all about actually making trying to make sure that they've got a, a contentment in their adult life and that's a pastoral concern one of the things that i find interesting is um when we look at the findings that came out of the project follow through stuff mm. in america during the 70s which our listeners may or may not know about but it's the the stuff that that, that compared direct instruction um capital d capital i mm -hmm. um with other um intervention uh 
tools and, and pedagogies. And they measured these various different strategies in, in terms of the academic success that they had, um, but also in terms of their sense of uh, self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and one other measure, which I forget, but what's really interesting is that programs which were specifically designed to boost self-esteem had had low impact on academic success and also low impact on the self-esteem measure. In fact, some of the programs that um, were specifically designed to positively boost self-esteem had the opposite effect. Whereas programs which were explicitly academic not only had positive impact on the academic measures, but they also had a positive impact on the self-esteem measures. And direct instruction, of course, had the highest impact on academic outcomes, but also on self-esteem measures as well. And what that suggests, I think, is that when kids do well in school, when they do well in their school subjects, when they are um, made to feel as though they are succeeding, that inevitably makes them um, feel a sense of well-being and high self-esteem. So I think really the, the, one of the jobs that we have to do in school is to find ways of, of enabling kids to experience academic success as mm. often as we can um, in order to, to make them feel that they have uh, a sense of place within the academic field and that they can achieve academically and then that gives them an ultimate boost. So to me, the tension is resolved by an yeah. acknowledgement that, you know, if I can help my kids to do well in school, then they are going to feel good about themselves. That reminds me of the time, uh, about a couple of years ago, my youngest, she was doing um, A-levels at that time and she was doing mm-hmm. maths. Um, and I was da- downstairs and I saw her come down the stairs uh, with a huge smile on her face. Um, and I said, you know, what's up? Uh, and she said, oh, I was just doing some maths work and it was a really, really difficult problem. It took me ages to solve it. But I've done it and I feel so good now. Yeah. 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 And and there is, I mean, you know, we've all experienced this and we've also experienced the opposite, haven't we? I mean, the, there, was, there was some subjects at school where I felt hopeless in and every lesson just confirmed that sense of hopelessness that I had. Um, I look at what my colleagues are doing in the, um, specifically maths and things like PE and sports, you know, I'm not a sportsman um, and, and maths, I always struggle to, to get my head around it. But I look at what my colleagues are doing in those subject areas at the school that I work at now and it's phenomenal. The way that they support and encourage children to succeed and to enjoy success in those in those fields, um, the way that my colleagues in the sports department manage to entice and engage kids who who are not in any way um, inclined to sport, generally speaking, and they get involved and they participate, and it's it's phenomenal to me. And I really wish that I'd had those kinds of teachers when I was at school because um, it would have made such a, such a difference to my self-esteem. Um, you know, I, I, I had a real kind of negative self-view when it came to, math, to maths. Um, you know, I, I, I got a 
what was it? The first time I did my GCSE maths, I got a grade E. And then I did it again at, at night school the year after and got an F. So, <laughs> oh, blimey. And it was a couple of years okay. later that I did it again through college. Um, and I'd been working. I'd been, you know, uh, doing uh, stuff with, with money and, and things. So, um, I, you know, I'd got a different attitude towards maths as a result of that. And I got my grade that I needed to, to get into teaching. And that's, that's almost the grade the grade that I'm still the most proud of, yeah. let alone the fact that I've just completed a doctorate. My GCSE yeah. maths right. is still the grade that I'm perhaps most proud of because of what it meant to me at that time, okay. what it enabled me to do at that time and how it made me feel at that time that I finally actually succeeded in this subject that for my whole life I'd been beating myself up about. Um, so, you know, that, that whole thing about the, the link between academic success and self-esteem is so important and, and it's so easy to get it wrong. It's so easy yeah. to deflate kids' yeah. uh, sense of, of self-worth. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't actually, I don't think it takes a huge amount of thought or effort to, to reverse that, to, to change that narrative. It just needs a bit of thinking about, and that brings me back, I suppose, to the idea of a pastoral curriculum as well, knowledge-rich pastoral curriculum, okay. which is, you know, as a subject teacher, you know, how how do I make my subject accessible to students who perhaps don't necessarily find it enjoyable or comfortable, and how do I find ways of making sure that they experience some sense of success with my subject? Um, that's a pastoral concern. Lovely. That's, again, you know, what you've been talking about today, everything I find, I'm, I'm just sat here, you know, listening and in awe to you. It's lovely. Um, I'm going to take another break um, for the news and ads. Um, but as I come back, as we've been talking about exams, another one for you to ponder as we play the ads mm -hmm. is that there have been calls to either abolish or at least completely overhaul Oh, I've lost you, Noreen. Oh. Oh. Hello. I think, yeah, my my I, my internet completely went, so I've had to uh, to use my phone to tether it. 
Oh dear. Let's see if that works. Yeah. Did you know Oxford University? Yes, I can hear everything now. Validated programs to help you. Read, write, ink phonics. Floppy's phonics. The brand new essential letters and sounds. Essential letters and sounds will get all the children reading well quickly using phonics books you may already Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Easy to use, and they teach you phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit OxfordPrimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone, welcome to the History Month. Artists Life, all things Black History Week. I'm your host, Yana Lindbrook, making space for honest conversations about Black British, Caribbean, and history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Month. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge, and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course, or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader? The assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute for Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Need support with your. This is Teachers Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. The government has laid out plans to make offering, advertising or providing essay writing services to university and college students for financial gain illegal. The new measure will be part of the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill, which hopes to transform further and technical education. The Department for Education said it hopes the criminalisation of SAML services will stop students from falling prey to deceptive marketing techniques from contract cheating services. The latest coronavirus figures show that 204,000 students were absent in England last week due to contracting or having close contact with the virus. This equates to 1 in 40 students off school in England, up from 1 in 80 on September the 7th. Teaching unions have called the statistics grim and fear it is the unvaccinated status of the majority of 10 to 19-year-olds that is causing the rise. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Welcome back. Um, I'm Noreen Khalid with Wednesday's The Late Show. And with me, I have Stephen Lane, and we've been talking about pastoral care and exams and so on. 
So um, before we went on the break, I asked Steve if, um, uh, if as a what does he think as a pastoral leader about calls to overhaul or completely do away with GCSE and A level exams? Over to you, Steve. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a funny one, really, and I, and I think you know, replace them with what would be my question. Um, I get to one of the arguments is that um, because so many of our students stay on to A level now, that the sort of idea that exams at the end of year eleven. Um, mark the kind of end of schooling obviously that's a slightly old-fashioned notion I mean certainly when I did my GCSEs back in the 90s early 90s you know it was only a small minority of students who would stay on to, to do sixth form particularly um, to, to do A levels other students might go off and do apprenticeships they might go off to college and a lot of them just went off and got jobs um, so so they needed the GCSEs perhaps um as as a kind of accreditation for that next stage in their life whereas now perhaps that's less needed but actually a lot of the calls for reform are to do with anxiety that exams cause for students um and that that it's kind of relentless that they go from one period of examination into another um which i think is probably true but i think that's not the fault of the exam. I think that's probably more to do with the way that they've become so high stakes uh, for schools and whatever pressures senior leaders put onto teachers inevitably then get sort of pushed down onto the kids um, and, and exams have become so high status. So I don't know. I think that my question would, would you know, would be what, what you're going to replace them with. One of the things that upsets me about the GCSE in general principle is that when it was first launched it was supposed to be an all-encompassing certificate so that a grade um g was a pass um which pretty much meant that any kid could pass the gcse um and you would just have that sort of level of of competence i guess marked out by the by the different grades and of course what happened over the over time was that grade c became the the magic grade we started to think of grade c as being a pass and then when they reformed them to the numerical um system a couple of years ago that got cemented in actual policy documents didn't it that a grade four is considered a pass and a grade five is considered a good pass so again it just means that anything below that a grade, your grade one two and three are utterly meaningless i i don't see the point of having examinations where i don't know what's that a third of the grades available are practically meaningless and useless i don't get that i don't understand the why we would do that so i i think that there is an argument in in favor of overhauling the way that we do it in order to re re-establish a sense of um the the grades having merit even at the lower lower end maybe there's an argument for some form of um i quite like i quite like sort of past merit and distinction type approaches to qualifications i'm the product of btec success you know my gcse results were pretty average my a-level results were pretty dire 
um, and I went to college and I did a, a BTEC national diploma back when they, you know, had um, some sense of value within the, you know, perception of the wider community. And I did really well on that. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot to be said for that kind of approach. The direct answer to the question of though is, I mean, I don't know, I, I, the the principle of scrapping them or completely reforming GCSE A levels, I'm open to that as a possibility, depending upon what the alternative is that's suggested, um, and and I've yet to see any su really solid suggestions of what an alternative model of examination might look like. One of the things that people talk about, of course, is the idea of of um, module assessment, unitized assessment, a return to coursework. But that is so loaded with problems. You know, um, as a teacher of English, coursework used to be the bane of my life mm. because, um, you know, the pressure that was placed on teachers by senior leaders to get those coursework marks up, which inevitably became stress that we passed on to the students and the idea of them of, of, of reworking and reworking and reworking um, essentially almost an encouragement to cheat um, on some of that stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to see a return to those days. Um, but the idea of perhaps having some kind of portfolio of evidence, I, I, I'm not opposed to that idea. I think that could work, but I would need to see some actual kind of detailed proposals before I could comment on, mm. on that. Well, exactly. I, I, I mean, I'm not, totally wedded to the idea of these terminal exams, but mm. I've not seen anything which makes me think, yes, that's a better way to do it, mm. which, I mean, you know, won't add to workload and which will be fair to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, and this is it. The The workload issue is a big, is a big one. Yeah. I, I've often thought that I would quite like to see some kind of, I don't know if this is what they do in the US, but some kind of credit system. So, so you would have you would have modules that you would do during your time in high school that that amounted to a certain amount of credits. Um, you'd have some compulsory uh, modules, probably in literacy and numeracy, um, and then you would build up a portfolio of of modules that would um, allow you to graduate either at a pass a merit or a distinction kind of level similar to, i guess in approach to what happens at universities um but i've seen i've seen people make reasonable arguments against that on the grounds that you know what happens at universities isn't exactly um foolproof mm. that there is um inherent um uh issues with grade inflation and those sorts of things yeah. and i suppose the biggest problem with what happens at universities is comparability between what one degree um, at one university might be in terms of um, a, a representation of work compared to a degree at another institution, and people will say a degree is a degree, mm -hmm. but we, but you know, I, I think it is fair to say that uh, you know, do, do degrees in different subjects at different universities probably do carry different weightings in terms of the amount of work that that they take so how do you compare <coughs> and another advantage of the GCSE of course is that there is a there, it is a more standard mm. thing across yeah. subjects excuse yeah. me 
ഫോർഡ്രിയേറ്റേഴ്സ് on expensive places <coughs> to you know to see the ruins in rome or whatever um, that's it and i mean you you've you've made a really important point there which is about the fairness yeah and i've seen a lot of compelling arguments that say that exams terminal exams are the fairest way um to to um award students uh for their work we saw in uh summer of this year and summer of last year the chaos that ensues when exams are cancelled and the immense burden of workload that that puts on people and the impossibility excuse me <coughs> the impossibility of um of being able to actually generate decent comparability there mm-hmm. um and there we also have you know a fair bit of evidence that shows that ultimately because we are human that human bias teacher bias comes into things like coursework much much more than they do in terminal exams and who is it that loses out through that bias it's people from disadvantaged backgrounds that lose out and we and we see that people from disadvantaged backgrounds Uh, is a the terminal examination is a much fairer system for people from uh disadvantaged backgrounds than things like coursework and a lot of the time that we see people arguing in favor of things like coursework are often the very same people who claim to be arguing for social justice mm-hmm. but if you want social justice then we need to have systems um in place that enable children to flourish for what they can do and for what they know regardless of their name regardless of their uh, ethnicity regardless of their skin color regardless of their gender regardless of their biological sex regardless of their postcode um and and at the moment the fairest way to do that is through terminal examination which is anonymized yeah that that, that that's exactly my thoughts on this well um hasn't time flown by we've mm. we've you know 90 minutes um and thank you so much for joining us it's been really fascinating and i think this is the the longest we've talked to each other uh, uh, i know <laughs> we've we've been twitter friends for a number of years yeah. and we've bumped into each other occasionally at research chat but you never really get time to have a proper conversation about no. those no. things no. so it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to speak with you this evening thank you so much for giving up your wednesday to come to the show um really enjoyed it uh, and i'm sure we'll continue this conversations um on twitter and listeners if you um have been if you if there are things which you wanted to say do drop us a line uh, drop us a tweet um at tt radio uh, 21 um and and tag steven i'm sure he'll he'll be only too happy to answer of course But, Uh, thank you it's been a pleasure and good night everyone no no bye bye you've been listening to teachers talk radio 
Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.